Precious Lord, we would seek you here. As we have come knowing, trusting that you are found here. And so, Lord, as we once again open your word and seek you there, we pray, Lord, that we would see you, that you would be known to us once again, and that your great and precious promises would steer our lives as we long for your kingdom. It's in your name, Lord Christ, that we pray. Amen. And then go ahead and be seated. So what's the psalm reading, mate? That's a question that we would jokingly ask in a uh, preaching seminar class that I took during seminary. See, each week we had to prepare a text from Scripture as if we would be preaching from it. Now, I was a first-year student way in over my head at the time, but most of my classmates were third-year students, and so they were actually out in parishes preaching on a regular basis. So very often they would actually bring texts that they were actually going to be preaching from in a parish sometime very soon uh, that they had gotten from the, uh, the lectionary, the schedule of readings that we follow in the church. But oftentimes when they would come and present a particularly prickly or difficult text, the professor who had spent most of his ministry in the UK would say, so mate, what did you say the psalm was that week? <laughs> sort of a, you know, that's always the ripcord, right? You know, at least the psalm will always give us some place to land if, uh, if the other scriptures are, are a little too, uh, you know, dicey to approach as a seminarian, right? I felt a little bit like that this week as I was looking over the scriptures that, uh, that were laid out before us. I mean, Malachi, Yowza, right? And then Hebrews, like, well, I just preached through the book of Hebrews last year, so I can't do that. And then I came to Psalm 84 and I thought, oh, yay. I think I've preached on that about six times in my 15 years of ministry. It's my favorite psalm. Let's go with that. And then through kind of a, a, a quirk of, uh, and sort of, frankly, an accident of my study and preparation early in the week, I actually read the gospel reading that I read to you this morning, um, and I thought, oh, no. Because the prompting of the Lord, the Spirit spoke pretty clearly, said, no, that's actually the text I want you to preach on. Great. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 1, one of the most known texts of scripture that anybody has ever encountered, right? So that's what we're doing. So if you have your Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 5 as we look together at these well-known beatitudes of Jesus. And the first, and actually one of the most significant details of Matthew's account is the setting. It says in verse 1, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And this is the convergence of a couple of the main themes that Matthew traces out throughout his gospel. The first is the way Jesus came as the servant foretold by the prophet Isaiah. The servant who would take on the roles and accomplish all of the, the, the tasks and the essence of what the people of God Israel were meant to be and to do. So for instance, Jesus' baptism in the Jordan River was evocative of Israel's passing through 
the Red Sea and then later the Jordan River to enter the land as they pass through on dry land. Jesus is baptized in the Jordan River. His fasting in the wilderness for 40 days wasn't just a random number he picked. It was meant to evoke the wandering in the wilderness of the people of God for 40 years. Later, Jesus will draw in the symbolism of the Passover to talk about the, the significance and the meaning, the symbolism, both of the breaking of bread and the pouring out of the cup, but also of his sacrificial work as the Lamb of God for the sins of the whole world. And here, his going up on the mountain recounts the ministry of Moses going up and meeting with the Lord and receiving the revelation of God's covenant in the Old Testament, which then draws in the second theme that Matthew wants to underscore, that Jesus not only came to fulfill the ministry of Israel, but that he also came to fulfill the covenant, the law that God had given on Mount Sinai. As Jesus himself will say, just a few verses beyond what I read to you this morning, he says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. It's verse 17. So by going up on the mountain to deliver this sermon, Jesus is declaring that his teaching assumes the fulfillment of God's Old Testament law. And it's a declaration that he himself would fulfill the law on behalf of the people. Likewise, the detail Matthew includes that Jesus sat down to teach. That was a common posture of the rabbis of his day. When he talks about the scribes and the Pharisees, a, a noted scribe or noted Pharisee, when they would teach in the synagogue, would actually sit down to teach. Here, Jesus is revealing himself as the scribe, or more appropriately, actually, the prophet like Moses that was foretold, because he himself, of course, was the lawgiver, all here to teach what God's law means for contemporary men and women, his contemporaries, but even ours as well. So not only is Jesus the ultimate fulfillment of the law, but his is the ultimate interpretation and understanding of its meaning and application. And following his moral exposition then is the appropriate response to his grace. That makes sense? He's come to fulfill the law. And so the appropriate response to his fulfillment is to walk in his teaching. Well, then we get to the Beatitudes themselves. Now, the form that Jesus uses here was not actually his own invention. These types of sayings were actually common in rabbinic teaching. We have the English translation of the Greek word makarioi, generally regarded as blessed. Right? So blessed are the poor in spirit, etc. But in the common Hebrew rendering, these types of pronouncements might be better suited to the word fortunate or it will go well with the one who. And that's a form of wisdom saying. So we need to read this as what uh, Old Testament scholars talking about like the Psalms and the Proverbs and whatnot refer to collectively as wisdom literature. This is a wisdom text. And they're not meant then to be read like if-then statements. Do this in order to get that. 
rather understood as wise aphorisms, the meaning is that the outcomes are the naturally resulting fruits of lives lived according to these teachings. I think that's an important point to understand. It's a bit of a nuance, but it's important to understand because far too often in contemporary Christianity, I hear the, the promises of God language thrown about without this nuanced understanding. I hear people talk about, you know, do this or that promise. Train up a child in the way he should go. I buried your word in my heart. Or give the first fruits of your produce. With the expectation of sort of a, a magic promise fulfillment on the other end. And when he goes, grows old, he will not depart. That I might not sin against you. And see if I will not bless. Right? But that over simple one-to-one get put in rather to get out sort of invest in order to cash out way of thinking actually reflects more on ancient paganism than biblical faith the pagan cultures were all about doing the right prescribed acts in order to evoke a response from your deity right and to get what you wanted or needed from them But that is not the way a sovereign, almighty God works. God will not revoke your child's free will just because you did your best to train them up. You will not be magically saved from the temptation to sin just because you commit a certain number of scripture texts to memory. And if you tithe, it does not guarantee that God will materially bless you beyond your wildest dreams. Rather, what the scriptures promise is that the Lord cares for his beloved. And his beloved walk in certain ways. There are plenty of poor people, destitute people, the world over who tithe and give to the Lord even beyond 10%. And they can never realistically expect because of the circumstances of where they live and the times that they are living in that they will ever do anything but barely scrape by. There are plenty of very smart men and women who have whole books of Scripture committed to memory who struggle just as much and probably in some cases more so than their illiterate brothers and sisters. There are dear Christian people who suffer the heartbreak of children wandering far from the faith that they were taught. We do not do these things because we expect to get the goods. We do them because they are good and right and true. And we can cling to the hope and the promise that the Lord promises to take care of his own. Those poor believers may never experience material blessing, but they enjoy a lively sense of God's presence in their lives. Those brothers and sisters are not preserved from sin and suffering by the scripture they know, but they are helped, I guarantee you, in the midst of their struggles because of what they have committed to heart. Those parents of wandering children know the peace and comfort of a father who weeps and cares more than even they do for their child as they struggle with the choices that they make. No, the wisdom sayings of the scriptures are not about a one-to-one correlation between cause and effect. Now, that doesn't diminish our hope 
doesn't diminish our hope in the promises of God for one moment. But it, it nuances our understanding to say, we do these things, we follow this lifestyle, not to get something out of it, but because it is wise and good and true. And we can rest in the fact that God is good and he brings forth good for those he loves. I find it interesting, there was a, uh, a poll done, uh, or a, a, a study, rather, like a 30-year-long study I believe it was the Gallup Foundation did, about the effects of regular church attendance on children. And they found that over 85% of kids who were raised going to church regularly and whose parents demonstrated in their lives that it actually made a difference somehow in their lives, over 85% ended up following in the faith. One commentator on those statistics actually said, that's about as near determinism as you get in the polling world. A one-to-one correlation. So a lifestyle lived in a certain way can ex- excuse me, expect certain kinds of fruits and outcomes. It's not a one-to-one correlation. But it is the goodness of God at work. Because these things speak of a lifestyle of faith and faithfulness both on the part of the people of God and the God who is love. Beyond that, we also, though, have to take note of the common feature of all of these sayings of Jesus. The fulfillment of each is cast in the future. The first of these pronouncements serves as something of an overview of the whole. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This points the hearer to the fact that all that Jesus does point to about the faithfulness of God in these it will go well with you statements finds its fulfillment in the future, in the kingdom. That's where fulfillment comes. As we continue to follow the Lord into understanding as a parish what it means to move forward in hope in this coming year, it's a timely word for us to consider and remember Ultimately, all of our hopes are focused on the coming kingdom of our Lord. It's in the fulfillment of the kingdom that we shall gain our inheritance, that we shall be comforted, that we shall be satisfied, gain mercy, see God. As Jesus unpacks all those ideas. And then as if to bookend the idea, he rounds it out in verse 12 with saying, Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. Think of the images that St. John paints for us in the Revelation of God declaring that he will dry every tear from every eye. That there shall be no need for a temple because we shall all enjoy God's fullness of his presence, visible and active with us. That there will not even be need for a sun or moon there because God himself will give light to the new heaven and the new earth, the newly remade perfect inheritance of the saints in light. Nevertheless, while these promises of fulfillment are placed squarely in the future, there's a very present tense aspect to what Jesus has to say. There's a present tense aspect to the the equation, if you will. Poverty of spirit, meekness, hungering and thirsting after righteousness, 
mercy, purity of heart, peacemaking, and enduring persecution. Those are all expected attitudes and activities of the children of God. This takes us back to that understanding of these wisdom sayings. They are indicative of a lifestyle, an attitude of heart which belongs to those who love and pursue their God. There's also an important balance point to the forward orientation of the kingdom that I was talking about. Because some Christians, and frankly even whole Christian traditions, have tended to be so forward-oriented in their thinking that they run the risk of a sort of almost quasi-Buddhist denial of present suffering, of present realities, of this present life because they're wholly focused on future glory. But friends, to be so rosy that we're, you know, too blessed to be stressed comes either from our, frankly, from our favored station of being among the wealthiest nation and culture the world has ever known, or from just outright denial, point blank. Where it does not come from is the presence of Jesus. Jesus was very real about the circumstances that his first century audience and every other century since would be facing. Poverty, suffering, conflict, persecution, they're all right here in the midst of these sayings. Those are the realities that Jesus is dealing with. He doesn't candy coat them. He doesn't promise to whisk his people away from them. What he does do, however is offer a kingdom perspective on them. This week I was reading some reflections of an Anglican bishop friend of mine on a blog, you'll never believe it, who was reflecting on William Wilberforce and those around him who labored and eventually saw significant change come to the British Empire and really the whole world as they overturned the dark practice of modern slavery. Bishop Andrew noted that in order to feel the fire of God burning within themselves to stir them to that action, they had to be confronted by the brokenness of the world in which they lived. He says, quote, If we're going to discern God's heart for the world, His heart within us, we need to engage with a suffering world. He says, quite simply, we need to get out more. However, there is a caveat. If we expose ourselves to all that is broken in the world but neglect to view the brokenness from God's perspective, which promises that everything is in the process of being restored, then I believe that we could be paralyzed by the immensity of global injustice. That is wisdom, friends. We cannot be blind to the suffering that goes on all around us, but neither can we be weighed down by its immensity. We need to view it with God's eyes. And goes on, Bishop Andrew, to talk about all the grim realities that William Wilberforce faced and his allies around him, from government bureaucracies that were broken to cultural sin that accepted things like slavery to personal struggles like Wilberforce's ill health and his subsequent opioid addiction. Yet they were firmly engaged with these realities while viewing them through a kingdom perspective. The perspective that Jesus offers here. 
My friend Bishop Andrew goes on, Wilberforce could have been sucked into an impossible downward spiral of despair. Instead, through prayer and the community of God's people, he entered a life viewed from God's perspective. Here is where our heads are lifted and our perspective shifts from that which our eyes can see to that which God is telling us is true. And in this reality, that which is enslaved can still be set free. What is broken can be mended. What is sick can be healed. What is hated can be loved. What is stained can still be made clean. And what is wrong can be made right. Hallelujah. This is the glorious balancing act of the wisdom of Jesus. He acknowledges that our eyes see poverty, injustice, mourning, conflict, Yet he offers hope of redemption, gaining the kingdom, comfort, an inheritance with the saints, satisfaction, mercy, a vision of God himself. That's all there in these Beatitudes as well. Gaining a redemption that comes to bear in the midst of present toil. This is a picture of what it looks like to move forward in hope greeting and accepting reality with kingdom eyes. It's wisdom summed up perfectly in the latter part of my favorite prayer of Reinhold Niebuhr, what most commonly known as the serenity prayer. Everybody knows the, you know, God grant me the serenity, yada, 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 right? But Niebuhr goes on and prays for grace to, quote, take as Jesus did this sinful world as it is, not as I would have it, trusting that you will make all things right if I surrender to your will so that I may be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with you forever in the next. Amen. That is the perspective of serenity that comes from the wisdom of Jesus. The ability to accept this world as it is, even when it is very much not as we would like it to be trusting that Jesus will make all things right as we surrender to his will with the expectation of reasonable happiness even in the midst of the brokenness of the world and ultimate happiness in the kingdom. That is the gift of these Beatitudes, brothers and sisters. So pray with me, would you? Lord, do grant us your people the grace to accept our lives with serenity, to accept those things that we cannot change, and to have courage to change the things that ought to be changed with your wisdom to help us to know the difference so that we can take, as Jesus did, this sinful world as it is, not as we would have it, that we can trust that you will make all things right as we surrender to the will of your kingdom so that we may begin to experience that kingdom perspective and the reasonable happiness it brings us now, even as we hope in ultimate fulfillment in your kingdom. So it's in your name, Lord Christ, that we pray with the Father and the Son, ever one God. Amen.